Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending Friday, June 30th. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, Nat shares how being denied chewing gum as a child has led to a lifelong obsession with this impulse shelf item. And Fee Wright leads us in a class of connection and communication, reviewing the book Greek Lessons by Han Kang. Then with Nat away, Simon and I look into ways to get hyped up before a big event. We uncover the healing power of horses with therapist Lisa Coffey, food critic. Michael Harden gets all sentimental and mushy over potato mash. (laughs) Then we're joined by Serial Walkley winner Nick McKenzie, who processes on air with us the fallout from his defamation trial against Ben Robert Smith upon the release of his new book, Crossing the Line. And we round out the week with some hard truths as we go fact-busting. Melbourne's own. Triple R. I strangely have been thinking like about chewy, chewing gum a lot recently. Maybe consider this like a bit of a school holiday special. <laughs> um, for me, it was something growing up that was always like a real treat. Like, but I don't know, is that kind of across the board? Were most kids like for you, like, how did you feel about ch- like one? Were you allowed it? Well, I, I suppose I have mixed emotions about chewing gum and bubble gum in general. Yeah, I struggled and don't believe that I ever really successfully blew a bubble with a bubble wow. gum, and it was a source of tremendous embarrassment and shame for me. Oh, no. And so, my contemporaries would be blowing bubbles with tremendous precision and skill and I was in the position of spectator rather than participant in this playground activity. Okay, sure. But was it something that was like kind of readily available, like you were allowed to get... Well, interesting you should ask that. There were certain brands which were forbidden. Okay. There was one which I remember turned people's tongues blue. (gasps) And so that became a source of some concern amongst the school authorities. And so that particular product was banned. But Hubba Bubba and general, yeah, bubblegum, yeah, brands were kind of fairly regularly um, appearing in the playground. But yeah, chewing gum, I definitely enjoyed. Yep. And And your parents would generally just let you buy it if you wanted it. I think I don't think that was an issue. Wow. Tic Tacs was also big for me. I That's incredible. Like. Mints, just Mints in general. In general, I was a big fan. And a preference, I suppose. Yeah, I guess the distinction between chewy and bubblegum. I yes. guess the the kind where you can blow the exactly. bubbles, which designed for the purpose. Yes. Were well, the brands that were forbidden to you? Did that have a role in your like failed mastication? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it took the pressure off when fewer people were blowing bubbles. I felt a little bit less kind of like. Yeah, like I was missing out on something big. What is the optimal, optimum bubble-blowing product, do you think? Mm. It's a really great question. There's this product that my nephew has called Bubble Yum. Oh. Cotton candy flavour is a particularly popular one at the okay. moment with, with my um, nephew. And we were actually during the week that we were away, I was in Sydney, and we yeah spent a little bit of time measuring the... The wow, of the, bubbles. the size of the bubble and they from were, the gesture you just made. They, they were impressive. In, yeah, significant. <laughs> but I remember it was all about Hubba Bubba and original flavour was the best for blowing bubbles 
that I remember from primary school. Yeah, right. Yeah, but oh god, I didn't even think about the the blowing of the bubbles. That's it's a like huge whistling, part of it. you know. There's like this kind of skill that one is expected to develop at a certain stage that doesn't mm. is not yeah. universal. I remember thinking maybe Hubba Bubba changed its recipe because mm. I the flavour just disappeared or whatever. But as you're speaking, I thought well, maybe I just outgrew it. <laughs> like yeah. maybe the strength of my jaw became like so pronounced or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that it, yeah, it destroyed and absorbed the flavour much quicker than it could when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like a free-for-all for chewing gum, bubble gum yeah. for Simon growing up. What about you, Dan? Well, I mean, there were ones forbidden from him. It wasn't a total free fall. Oh, yeah, the blue one. Okay, the one but that there was there was definitely forbidden. a prominent feature, the forbidden and the non-forbidden. Yeah, yeah, I mean, chewing gum is – I don't know any kids that are – isn't that all about fresh breath? Like who uh, – Yeah. Does it, like there was, I, I never thought of a pellet of – Oh, actually, yeah. I think my dad would carry around PK. Oh, PK. I remember PK. And if you could score a pellet from that, it was a special day. Yeah. <laughs> so God, was, that's pathetic. It was definitely... No, I was a fan of the PK, that's for sure. Yeah, the, the blue, the, the grey one, that was really strong. It was like that was all about freshness, like the minty, fresh breath. But for me, like growing up, Chewy was just all I wanted and not even the hubba bubba but that kind of minty taste it was like really like I have such a strong connection to it like I just thought when I grow up it was like such an aspirational thing for me I'm like I want a Toyota hatchback like I'll be able to drive and when I can drive I'll go to the milk bar and I will buy chewy so check the the glove box it's filled it's filled with chewy it was just this it was such a strong like vision for me aspiration and I've just been thinking about it because I only really buy chewing now as an adult or mainly when I fly and because I went up to visit my auntie in Byron I bought some chewing you know for your ears and I am just struck by like I I regress to being like a child again like I don't I cannot manage a packet of chewing like I remember what this is why I only buy it when I fly I can churn through a pack in, I'm not even kidding, like 10 minutes. No, 15, 20. (laughs) 15, 20 minutes. Like one piece goes in, I chew. Such as in your your enthusiasm for the flavour. For the flavour. Right. And then I'm like, all right, like that's gone. (laughs) And I just like churn through an entire pack. It's, I was like, this is why you don't. I was really struck by my I, I just am not like it's like when you first turn 18 and you start to drink you know you learn to manage it you um what's the word is it moderation pace yourself pace moderation yourself. exactly but chewy is my blind spot for that i even as well in this day and age of health and wellness i swallow the chewy as well because sometimes I just need to get rid of it so quickly. Well, I suspect that was a myth. That, really? Well, I, I was, I, it I was, doesn't feel good what I'm doing, but uh, maybe it is just because I've been bob- bombarded with the messaging that you should never. I would be very interested doing. to know the latest research I mean, on whether well, or not. Truly, like imagine, wouldn't there be an autopsy and they say, look, we <laughs> cut open this 90-year-old, they died from an absolute accumulation of hardened PK. I feel like you're gut. referring to me here. We've yeah. got an age. I love it. 90, I'm going uh, to. But I'm wondering whether, so sometimes you might convince yourself that you've got bad breath, but do you go through that 
game where it's like, no, I need this chewy, mm. or it's just down the hatch. <laughs> no, it's just down the hatch. <laughs> it is just mindless consumption and chewing. Um, yeah, it's really bizarre, like, that I just cannot keep myself <laughs> in check with it. <laughs> but, like, I used to chew blue tack as a kid because I so desperately – maybe it was something I saw in the movies. I thought that this was maybe something quite um, – standard for kids that I thought it was the general consensus that Chewy wasn't for kids. I don't know, maybe some choking hazard or something like that. So I just felt like I could never get my mitts on it. So I was... Whatever was available, Blue Tag. Yeah, God, kind of what commentary, like she couldn't get Chewy, so she went to Blue Tag. <laughs> just for making something forbidden doesn't work. Yeah, I do wonder whether the decline in tobacco smoking has correlated with a decline maybe in chewing gum purchasing. Yeah, true. Because most of the people that I would, uh, you know, what do you, blag a cigarette or, yeah. or you know, skiv a piece of chewy from were smokers. Yes. Trying to cover their stench. Uh-huh. But if now vaping smells like chewing gum and bubble gum, and so I'm wondering if the chewing gum itself is becoming a dying pleasure. Yeah, wow, that is that's something to think about. Because I know that uh, that's also tied into my memory as a kid. Like, I love the smell of smoke. I love the smell, mix of perfume and smoke and now maybe like mint and smoke. And because maybe, yeah, as a kid, memories of these people were who had Chewy, who I looked up to and admired so much. I'm like, I'm going to be just like you one day, just purchasing my own my own Chewy. I want to get some Chewy off you now, but I know there's only a 15 minute window. <laughs> Triple R. Fee Wright's back with us, thank goodness, talking books. Morning, Fee. Good morning. It's school holidays, and uh, I, have, I have the perfect, perfect, short and sweet little book for everyone this uh this break an easy win as jez might have called it oh yeah gosh that's that that's it takes me back to the joy of speaking to jez but also gosh i really needed a lot of easy wins in 2020 <laughs> let's put it that way um the book i'm here to discuss is greek lessons by han kang um it's originally written in korean and it's been translated so it was originally published in 2011 but it's just been translated into english this year and it's been translated by emily Ye wong and it's out via penguin and hamish hamilton which i think is a subsidiary of penguin it had two publisher logos so i'm just saying both yep um but I thought this would be a really fun one to discuss, especially since you had a linguist on earlier. Yeah. Um, good job, Mel, programming these two <laughs> events together. Turns out someone who knows books is having fun with the uh, producing. Um, because this is a book that's fixated on language. So um, it contains Korean language and characters, along with Greek language and characters, and also some German as well. So this is a book that is really focused on language and communication um, across, like, lots of different cultures and also language divides. So, and it's not even necessarily... It's even more basic than that. We're talking like, oh, language and culture, but also how we communicate um, face-to-face or um, 
even how we communicate with our body and our body language. Um, And we get a really strong sense of that through our two main characters. Um, We don't know their names. We have a young woman who appears from the outside socially to be, um, I don't know how else to phrase this, but externally, societally would view her as um, selectively mute. But from her perspective, um, she has gone through some trauma and is unable to find her words and her voice. And so it's she discusses it um, in her mind, in her internal monologue that we experience. She discusses it as a loss and she grieves that loss. Um, And she decides to learn a language that is mostly written and not spoken, which is ancient Greek. Um, If you're not, if you're unaware, ancient Greek has very little connection and resemblance to modern Greek as we know it. Um, And that's actually why I picked the book up was because I had it. I've been very, very, very beginning, very basic. I don't even know the full alphabet yet learning ancient Greek this year. And friends of mine said to me, Fee, you got to read this book because of, because of that. Um, So you don't need to know any ancient Greek in it at all, but it is really fixated on, on language. Um, additionally to this, the other main character whose internal monologue we experience is her ancient Greek teacher. And he has known for about 25 years that he is losing his sight, but he's never learned Braille in any of the languages that he speaks and has focused his studies mostly on a dead language that people read to comprehend. Uh, so oops. yeah, oops, <laughs> whoopsie daisy. Um, so we, we experience these two people. We, we never learn the names of them. Um, a woman who cannot speak and a man who is losing his vision. And the book is essentially an exploration of what lead them to this point or what led them to this point. So what was the events that led to her being unable to, to speak and what led to him losing his sight um, and also the cultural divide. So the man actually left Korea when he was 15 and went to Germany with his family and then decides to go back to Korea after having lived in Germany um, and finds it really comforting to return to the culture of his childhood and to not feel like he stands out and, and things like that. But how do we connect with others when all other options are removed is kind of the focus of the book and I just I just could not put it down and I also think it's got tremendous reread value because each sentence in the book is so carefully selected. It's it is quite short and it's quite sparse but every word is selected deliberately and there is a real clarity of choice there through the structure. So oh, there's such a captivating central question as well that you just articulated <laughs> as your connection. Well, I'm not expecting an answer. So that's why I kept talking. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a, a fascinating prompt for, I suppose, the reader to also reflect upon as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it made me think about how, well, okay, we were just talking about jazz and um, reviews and things in 2020. I can remember doing those from my house and sharing through video screens with the people that I was now, now I'm in a room with, you know, and so we've had this isolation recently, um, which is why it's an interesting time. uh, You know, it's been over a decade since the book was originally published in Korean. Why publish it now? I'm not Mm. sure. Um, But, 
you know, these moments of being really physically disconnected from people and having to rely on other senses in order, and I mean like in the the, the base sense of sight, hear, whatever, um, you know, this book is really challenging how we, or the things that we assume, like the basic assumptions of connection through society and community and then also how we communicate. So... Um, I mean, also, as you're speaking about it, it's like, well, why bother? Like, sometimes it's, why do I have to force getting to know this person or that person? Mm. I mean... Obviously, these characters have to or do, or but sometimes well, they, well, it, 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 they it, don't. They don't actually communicate directly for up to six months. I don't think. I right. think she sits in his classroom for six months without actually directly communicating with each other. Mm. But so many people in life, it's like, well, if the friction's too great, why bother? Like, if it's if it's not easy, I'm out. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to go into how okay. they cross that <laughs> All right. because I think it's really interesting how they do it and how – and it's it's definitely something that I – was when I read it, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me. But it's it, it must have – to me, I don't know how – Han Kang came up with it without actually having experienced this situation because it just felt so, um, you know, it's, it's like MacGyver of communication. God, that is, please don't, (laughs) you're going to make a joke about that, Daniel, and I regret it. (laughs) I've noticed that it was covered in gaffer tape. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, you're just ruining me. Okay. I'm going to take it back to ancient Greek now to, to like, um, to ignore the fact that I refer to MacGyver. So, <laughs> all right, he's a really good example of you don't need to know anything, all right? Oh, that even sounds not great. So a chapter starts with two ancient Greek verbs. You don't need to be able to read ancient Greek. Um, in fact, uh, Daniel, you can you can flip it open. It's got the little post-it note yeah. there. You don't need to be able to read ancient Greek. You can just look at the symbols and see that these two clusters of symbols look mostly alike yes however when you read the translation below and the discussion that kang goes into you learn that these two words look almost identical but have very different meanings so they're both verbs but one means to suffer and the other means to learn and And you could shut the book and chew on that for a while if you yeah yeah exactly and also you don't know which is which unless you can actually speak ancient Greek. So it doesn't matter which one is to suffer and which one is to learn. You just need to know as the reader that they are similar-looking words. And so they must be closely related when you consider the language of, of ancient Greek. And I also want to take um, just a moment as well to say not a lot happens in this book at all, mm-hmm. but it is so beautiful. Um, the translator, Emily Ye Wong, has translated a lot of works from English into Korean. So she's done translations of people such as Samuel Beckett, Deborah, Deborah Levy, and Maggie Nelson. And she is incredible. Her grasp of not just English, but then also having to be comfortable with German. Um, Korean and ancient Greek 
yeah, it was translation is so difficult and you can't be literal, especially not with, with ancient Greek. Um, so, yeah, the work of the, the translator is immense here. Wow. Okay, so it's the first time English translation of a Korean book called Greek Lessons. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and it's called Hang Kang, author of The Vegetarian. Just And it's a very punchy little book as well, 160 pages, I 160 think. pages, but you can just, as you said, pause it in moments and just chew on some stuff. Wonderful. Fee right. Thanks very much. Thank you. Triple R. The second test of the ashes is about to kick off in at Lords, and our correspondent Dono is there. I'm very excited for him, <laughs> and uh, he went horse celebrating the result of the first test. He was lucky to be there. Um, I was reading that the England captain Ben Stokes before the first test was showing the players a scene from Baz Luhrmann's Elvis <laughs> to get them g'd up, yes. uh, and it was the finger wiggling scene so the finger wiggling scene so now there's a Elvis was famously told that he wasn't allowed to gyrate his hips I see yes so I he had to channel his rebelliousness through the wiggling of his little finger I remember this bit so act of defiance against the orders that's right yeah and and the crowd goes wild and I see that Ben Stokes is trotted this out of Bit. He trotted out last year. He really likes Elvis, the so movie. This film has captured his imagination because I was thinking there's so many films which are famous for, I mean, there's Braveheart. Of course. This motivational rallying sort of moment in the film. But that that's quite a deep cut motivational moment, isn't so. it? The, um, the Elvis wiggling. Yeah. So you've got Elvis. The other ones that come to mind, I suppose, are Rocky. Rocky, or, indeed. Or, uh, maybe is... Is this too? Is this too much of a reach? Like Dead Poet Society? Like oh well, a, indeed, Captain. My Captain. Yeah, moment. I suppose if you're standing on a desk, quiet. Th- there's something about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he Ben Stokes wants them to be rock stars. Oh, I see. Says, I, of course. Okay, right. And he's like, we can't be rock stars, but you know, out there, we we can do our best to you know replicate that. And I think he liked Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen played. Athletes obviously have their personal songs. Yes, indeed. Yes, that's quite correct. My cousin, who is often involved in uh, powerlifting competitions, has a a specific playlist, of course, which is at the moment apparently a lot of heavy metal, just to kind of get that energy level up. Were you uh, consulted? (laughs) No, No. no, but I was very excited to see it, actually. I see power poses. People psych themselves up with that. Yeah. I didn't. And I, you have a look around. And they say it's. This is what the top line on Wikipedia: power posing is a controversial self improvement technique. I've, well, I've heard about it. So the sense, I think, it's a body led cognition in that by positioning yourself in a posture of empowerment, your brain then follows the body's lead mm. and adopts that stance or mentality. Well, that makes sense. I mean, whatever works. Yeah, which is what makes the wiggling of the finger so interesting because it's the opposite of what you might imagine a power stance to be. Yes. But physically it kind of carries with it a lot of humour and resilience maybe. Yeah, and I guess it concentrates the uh, the focus and the power in a in a tiny gesture. Yes, which maybe magnifies the yeah. Exactly. Although it's not that easy to wiggle a little finger. No, I can't do it without wiggling my, <laughs> mi- my middle yeah. finger. Uh, uh, David Letterman would backstage uh, all the staff 
before a show as the band was playing, now this is, you know, 30 years into his broadcasting career, would everyone would pin themselves against the wall because he would go sprinting around the labyrinthine backstage area and you never knew when he would sprint. So was, was that a humorous thing or was that like a no, genuine danger for staff to, oh, yeah, to be was, in the way? Just get out of the way. <laughs> He's burning off nervous energy. Wow. Yeah. That's such a great idea to to physically exert yourself like that, getting ready. Exactly. I mean, there are some times, I'm not sure what you do, if, if there are moments when I am have to conserve energy, I don't want to hype up. I almost shut down entirely before I have to blossom. I, indeed, that makes a lot of sense. So sort of, a sort of form of mindful meditation or just a, a pause in physical activity to gather one's thoughts. That's an interesting... I definitely do that. I was even thinking this morning, you were very kind to give me a lift into the station and there was this small moment where I was running a bit late, so I jogged. And I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe I should jog a bit more before the show. Oh, just to it get felt moving. good. Yeah, it felt yeah, good. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, we're not going to, but I think it's a, <laughs> it's a noble idea. <laughs> totally. Uh, yeah, I mean, your motivational songs, I know you probably don't want to give any away, but they, <laughs> being a music polymath, they must change. It's interesting. I wonder about the idea of music as a motivational tool in in my life I find that certain music I gravitate towards and it's often sort of jazz music or Mm. yeah a lot of sort of Brazilian inspired music and soundtrack stuff but yeah I've never sort of found that sort of drive to listen to sort of really upbeat music to get myself motivated yeah there's something and sometimes I wonder whether it's diminishing returns Mm. Uh, I, I used to have to get up early and still do, but in this position I was writing material for a radio host. Yes. And I would have to get up and have be on speakerphone and deliver these jokes and spitball comedy. So you had to gather a lot of resolve to kind yeah, of deliver these yeah. jokes. Or, and, and, and also afterward the conversation transcribe and edit and massage them into something that's you know, serviceable yes, and on a very fast deadline and I then see. I'd go to another job. Yes. And I was thinking this morning how every single morning I would soundtrack the start of that process with uh, Desire Lines by Deer Hunter. Indeed. And I have no – and it's, it was a – I think it's like a six-minute track and it would get me going and set me on the course and now, of course, it's – Totally ruined it for me. <laughs> JVG, he at the uh, at the community cup in the change rooms, he was terribly inspiring. Always, mm. the, this is a particularly inspiring environment. I found the very few times I've been privileged to be present in that room, so much motivation and inspiration. Yes, and he was drawing parallel. He was talking about the the legacy. It was in its thirtieth year and where it began and how he was there and how where emblematic of its if its progress and beauty it was really lovely amazing and then it gets you know everyone you know screaming and crying <laughs> and everything like that but it is it we allow ourselves to be hacked don't we oh it's a it's a joy to be caught up in that spirit mm. absolutely uh but the problem is now i just can't listen to that bloody song i'm so sorry i queued <laughs> it up for you <laughs> triple r on fm digital online and via the app It's 
It's that time on a Thursday for us to feature creatures on Breakfasters, and we welcome into studio Director of Racing Hearts Equine Assisted Therapies, Lisa Coffey. Morning, Lisa. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Oh, it's our pleasure. What do you do every day? Goodness, my days <laughs> my days are quite different um, because I've kind of stepped away from um, treating clients to managing the charity and the practice. And client is a horse no client is a human okay um although our clients can also be horses (laughs) um so basically what i do in a day is i really manage our practice but what our practice racing hearts is or our charity is it's an equine assisted therapy mental health support organization so what that really means is that we see people in communities who are struggling with the challenges of mental health And instead of seeing them in a room-based situation, we work with them on a farm or at multiple locations around the country, out in nature, out in the open, uh, working with retired racehorses. So the the key element and the the point of difference is that we work with retired racehorses instead of seeing them in a room-based situation. Mm. And is everyone willing? How do you mean? Uh, well, are we being encu- do you have people that are being encouraged to visit the horses or mandated to visit the horses or they want it? Do they know what they're getting into? We, the adults that attend our clinic definitely know what they're getting into. Um, the children sometimes have been sent by their parents or by the school. So they kind of rock up and they think they're just coming out to pat ponies. And to be fair, with the, with the, the sessions we run for young people, they probably do look a lot more like the the kids are having fun. So it's it's incidental therapy. They don't actually know that we're conducting a therapy session with them. They just know that they're out in the open and they're having fun with the horses. Whereas, you know, by the, the end of a program when a child is with us or a school group, um, they they will come at the end and realise that they're behaving differently or their thought patterns are different or they can they can regulate their emotions. Whereas you know, if in the beginning, if we had started to talk to them about that, they w- we would have just completely lost them because they just think that they're there either being put, they think they're there because they're being punished or they think they're there to play with horses. Mm. But we know why they're there. So at the end, you know, we get great feedback from really young kids that, you know, they, they know how to use their out-breath to, to keep themselves calm. And, you know, when their heart starts to race, they think about the horses and they're able to regulate their heartbeats and they're able to regulate their breathing. And that helps them behave in, in a much healthier way in, in stressful situations. So... Um, it's an interesting question. No one's actually ever asked me that before, if, if everyone is a willing participant. <laughs> um, yes is the overall answer. But, <laughs> yeah. but, um, at the end, like, certainly. At yeah. The, yeah, not everyone knows why they're there to start off mm. with. Well, we're certainly very interested to hear more about the the actual sessions themselves. Could you yeah, take us through what, what a, a, an ordinary yeah, equine-assisted therapy session would look like? Absolutely. So we always start our sessions off with breathing exercises. Um, we talk to the client about how the horses actually model healthy behaviour for people. Um, So we talk about how the horses actually live in present awareness all the time, how the horse's brain structure is quite different to a human, so they don't actually have the ability to worry about the past or worry about the future. I mean, how cool would it be if we could all live in the present all of the time and not really worry about what's going to happen tomorrow or what might happen next week? Or Because we never really know, right? We never actually really know what's coming next. And the horses live in embodied awareness. So they always respond to their physical sensations. So, for example, a really easy, um, simple explanation of present awareness that we would give to our clients is that, um, you know, the horse's stomach might rumble. Um, it sends a message to its brain that it's hungry. Um, its brain activates its legs to go and search out for food. Uh, its nose and its whiskers um, sort out which food is safe to eat. The horse eats, um, the stomach is satisfied, and then they kind of go back to grazing. So it's like a cycle of experience. Whereas if our tummy rumbles, we kind of think, 
Ah, yeah, I'm hungry now. Oh, will I have chocolate? No, that'll make me fat. <laughs> oh, will I have a salad? Oh, yuck, that's boring. <laughs> oh, well, and you know, we have this innate ability to just overthink everything. And some people overthink a lot more than others. But, um, you know, overthinking is one of the things that leads to anxiety. So um, and stress and all those other things that um, people are really challenged with at the moment. So you know the 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 horses living in present awareness is probably one of the biggest things that we teach. The outbreath for the horse, you know, horses t- take an outbreath quite regularly. That's part of how they regulate their nervous system, especially when they're um, when they're heightened or they are anxious. Um, anyone that knows what, how a horse behaves, they will be quite tense and they'll almost grow a couple of inches and they'll really snort outbreaths through their nostrils. And that's one of the ways that they actually regulate their their nervous system. Um, and then the same with um, being grounded, you know, the, the, the horses are constantly grounded and we're not always grounded. Um, we'll, you will do lots of um, exercises uh, for resourcing for our clients. We do a lot of trauma based or tra- trauma informed work. So I would say probably about 80 more, 85, 90 percent of our clients um, have experienced some really significant trauma. Um, so a lot of what we would do with them, too, would be resourcing exercises. So identifying things in nature that they're really drawn to, um, always bringing the person back into their body. So noticing where they actually really experience emotion in their body as opposed to constantly living in their heads. Because our bodies never really lie to us. Our brains can be real idiots. We tell ourselves so much nonsense all the time and stories about ourselves and stories about other people. 99% of the time, those stories we tell ourselves are not true. So we really have to look for the evidence to support what we're telling ourselves. Horses don't have the ability to do that. So especially with the kids that we see, um, one of the things we try and say to them is, you know, if you're in the car and you're going to school and you're feeling a bit nervous, you know, we've learned all about the horses now, how they're grounded and, you know, they live in their bodies and they notice their physical sensations all the time and they use their outbreath for, um, you know, regulating their emotions and regulating their breathing. So if you're in the car and you're nervous going to school, just remember to try and be more like the horse. You know, take your out-breath, notice the things around you that make you feel safe or make you feel comfortable and really notice where you're experiencing things in your body. Allow it to be there like the horses do and then allow it to pass. So just let it go. It's exactly the same as the horses. The horses don't have that ability to hold grudges either. So they, they express their boundaries and they just let it go. What about, I mean, some people get nervous around horses, don't they? Or they worry that they'll spook them or is there, how, how do you massage that or corral that relationship? It's a really interesting question because it's one of the things um, that we actually use or an exercise we actually use quite a lot in um, our therapy sessions is if people are nervous, it's one of the really key ways that we can help teach them to regulate their nervous system. So if they're nervous around the horses, we will ask them when's the last time they felt nervous and, and describe that experience. So everything we do with the horses, we, we relate back to the person's life because you know our job is to help people survive by themselves without us as quickly as possible and without the horses because you know they're not going to have a horse in school or a horse at work or a horse at home necessarily. Um, so it's about... Again, identifying the the body rhythms and the the body sensations. You know, if you're if you're nervous, where are you experiencing that in your body, and really noticing how that's impacting on the horse as well. So we talk to the client about you know horses live in present awareness. So their only concern is that whether they're safe with you or not. So if your heart rate is elevated, if your breathing is elevated. Um, you know, I'm sure that horses can read really finite, intricate body movements um, or body language from us that we probably don't really see in each other because they have to read that in the wild or they have to read that in a herd with each other to keep themselves safe. So we teach the clients to really regulate their their body language, their breathing, um, their uh, their heart rate. And a lot of that is connected to their thoughts as well. Mm. So for them to be able to approach the horses and work with them and for the horses to feel safe with them it teaches them to actually regulate their emotions. 
And then when we project that back to people in their lives, it's exactly the same thing. Because when we work with a horse, we work in a relationship. And it's one of the big things that we can't do in a room-based situation. You know, the horses offer things like safe touch and, um, you know, our clients get a lot of feelings of love and protect, protectiveness and safety. Um, we can't do that as therapists in a room because, you know, we're discouraged from hugging our clients or, um, you know, uh, offering feelings of love or things like that in case things are taken the wrong way. But the horses can do that because it's a non-judgmental relationship. It's a horse. You know, it's not another person that's um, crossing a client's boundary or their physical boundary, whatever they feel uncomfortable with. Racing Arts is a charity. Where do the horses come in, come from? What does the back end look like? So our horses come from lots of different avenues. We have a partnership with Henry Dwyer Racing and Kieran Marr Racing at the moment and OTI Racing also. So we um, have donations come from those three racing organisations and we take their retired racehorses. Um, we also get horses from Racing Victoria. So we work a lot with the Racing Victoria Reset Programme. So the Reset Programme is for horses who owners have tried to rehome unsuccessfully. So they're usually horses that are a bit older and they might have sustained some injuries that make them not suitable for highly competitive sports in equestrian um, equestrian circles. Uh, they might not be pretty enough for the show ring. Um, they might have a few, again, a little bit like our clients, actually, they might have a few anxiety issues or behavioural problems. Um, so we take those kinds of horses and they're probably the horses we really love working with too. You know, the majority of the horses that we get are not sound. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're, they're healthy usually, but they're probably not sound physically. Um, and sometimes they're not sound psychologically. So that's that's the kind of work that we do. And Sometimes it's really, um, actually this happens quite often, but it's it's really, uh, I mean, it's heartwarming for me to see when a new horse arrives and you know, once we establish the horse is safe for a client to work with, even though the horse is still going through its motions and it's whatever um, rehabilitation or therapy that we're doing with the horse in, in its programme, to match a particular client with a horse that's also going through a journey is really powerful. And to see the changes in the horse and the client after, say, an eight-week program, it's it's amazing. Mm. It's, the changes in the horses, the changes in the people, even sometimes how the horses behave with different clients that come to the farm. So you know, we're all of our therapists on the farm um, in Balnaring are really experienced horse people. And, you know, we've... We can read horses' behaviour and, and you know, we can manipulate horses' behaviour based on our body language and how confident and calm we are around them. But we, we know them how they are with us. When clients arrive, very often they behave completely differently with the clients. And it gives us a real insight as to where the client is at as well. So... If a horse is particularly anxious and they're not usually like that with a therapist, it would give us an insight as to how the, the client is feeling. Um, if a horse is particularly calm and they're not usually with us, it gives us a bit of insight as to how the um, how the, the body or the, you know, the physical system of the client is feeling too. So it's kind of... Um, uh, I mean, I don't think I've managed <laughs> too well in a in a, a room based situation anymore with clients. I really rely on the horses to give me um, a lot of feedback about where the clients are at. That would be an interesting practice, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? You'd sit down on the couch <laughs> and say hi to my horse. Uh, okay, so if we go to racinghearts.com.au, we can check out more about what you do. Yes, absolutely. There's a there's some. Um, information there on the programs that we run um, we see clients from I think our youngest client is four and our eldest client is in their 70s um, a whole range of right across the spectrum of the lifespan and range of um, 
mental health challenges and the retired racehorses that we have. Um, we don't actually get any funding apart from the reset horses from Racing Victoria and some donations that we get from our uh, racing stable partners. We're completely self-funded. Um, so we really rely on donations from people to help us feed the horses and care for them, especially because they come with quite high special needs and they're very expensive to look after. Um, and then also we try and offer free programs for people as well. So we've got lots of people on our wait list that are, they don't qualify for NDIS and, you know, they're doing it a bit tough and they just don't have the money to pay for therapy. So we really like to be able to offer those people free sessions. All right. Well, racinghearts.com.au is where to go. We've been speaking equine assisted therapy with Lisa Coffey. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks very much. Triple R. Australian gourmet traveller Michael Harding is hassled back for a comforting food interlude. Morning, Michael. God, that was magnificent. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you'd enjoy a dad pun. Uh, Tell us, where have you, where have we been recently? Well, I've just sort of like, you know, I've been close to home and because it's been freezing and inside. And so it's sort of like, you know, I've caught obviously thoughts turn to comfort food and, uh, you know, mashed potatoes are kind of up there as, you know, one of the one of the all time great comfort foods. And I kind of the, the thing I like about mashed potatoes is they're very um, they, they run the spectrum from high to low. You know, it's sort of like you can have mashed potatoes in, you know, high end restaurants, you know, that have been sort of um, mashed to a sort of like a silky texture that's full of cheese and you know, cream, you know, French style. And then you kind of go down the other end of the, of the spectrum where you've got, you know, they're sort of like, you know, the chunky kind of filler. And, uh, you know, that's that's when you sort of like it get one of the things that mashed potatoes has been called over the years is Irish guacamole. So it's kind of like it's it can be anything that you want it to be. And I think it's sort of like what I like the history of it because it sort of represents what that is. So it was the first sort of um, sighting of mashed potatoes in in sort of written history is, is a guy called Antoine Augustine Palmetier. So he's French. He was a military pharmacist. I'm not quite sure what that is. But but uh, he was um, in the Seven Year War in the, like the mid 1700s and was captured by the Prussians and thrown into jail. And they were forced to the only thing that they were allowed to eat was potatoes. And potatoes at the time were considered livestock feed and um, capable of giving you leprosy. So um, he had to sort of like you know, but he was forced into this thing. So it's one of these sort of happy cooking accidents that you know necessity. Um, you know, have, like came to him, so it was sort of like, and so he, when he got out, he was like a great, he was a potato convert because he he looked at all these different ways of doing it, including mashed potatoes and. Mashed potatoes had actually been banned for human consumption in France in about, I think, 1748. It was actually banned because they because of the leprosy thing. Wow. And um, and then, but because he became this sort of potato. Um, Spruker and uh, got the law turned around. So 1772, they they decided that the potatoes were fit for human consumption and because of his recipes, including his mashed potato recipe, um, became sort of a staple of French cuisine. What a hero. So, yeah, yeah. So he's like, you know, spud you like. (laughs) And uh, do you bring baggage... do you sense that people bring baggage of potatoes, like what they grew up with, mash? Yeah, I really think that it's a very, they're sort of quite a personal thing and people can get quite a hot under the collar about, you know, there's all these sort of various do's and don'ts and you should do this and you shouldn't do that and the type of potatoes. So it's sort of like, you know, with in terms of potatoes, there's sort of the two schools because there's the two 
broadly speaking, types of potatoes. So you've got sort of a floury or more floury sort of starchy potato or then a waxy kind of like thicker, denser mashed potato. So, you know, if you're looking at floury, you think of things like spunters and sabagos and nicolas and that sort of stuff. And then the waxier ones are like desirees and Dutch creams and kiplers and those sort of ones. So um, the a lot of chefs will go for the floury potatoes because they feel that they 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 give you they, it's a lighter fluffier mash um the waxy will will give you a creamier mash which is kind of my preference mm-hmm. I, I like a sort of like a thicker denser ones and then there's the whole idea of like do you peel a potato before you boil it or not because it's like there's a big school that says don't peel a potato um because it contains like it, it will keep the flavor in because otherwise like particularly when you're talking floury potatoes they they're less dense and so they'll take up more water so you will lose some flavor from the potato so then you have to like you know like so I, my preference is to boil the potato whole with the skin on and then peel it afterwards and um, which is actually quite easy to do because the skin's quite loose by the time you get there. You'll need a tea towel because the potato will be still warm. But, yes. But you can also, there's a technique that you can do. You can also run a knife, really thin, thin cut around the middle of the potato, just almost just skin deep and before you boil it. And then it will kind of peel at where, where that is. And so you can tend to sort of peel the whole piece off quite easily. So it's like, you know, it, you can still get it yourself into a boiled egg situation where you're trying to peel it and <laughs> it's coming off in like irritating little chips. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but basically the skin can sort of peel off the whole way. And I suppose some dishes would demand different potatoes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like it's for it's sort of where like if you like a kind of fluffier potato, um, you know, it's sort of like or you're sort of looking at things like um, you know, shepherd's pie, for example, or even things like you know, you can't because mashed potato is basically the the base ingredient for gnocchi as well. So it's kind of like you're looking at like sort of so you need different densities because there's you know there's there's mashed potatoes in Chinese cuisine in Yunnan cuisine that but that's very much a sort of more a waxy potato because the the texture of that is much stickier. So um, you know, it's kind of like it does. You you can you can get very nuanced about mm. mash if you really want to. Such a rich topic that you're sort of touching upon all of the different variables, and of course, you just mentioned gnocchi. There is this one of the comfort foods that you had in mind when you think of mashed potatoes. Oh, always, yeah, yeah. Gnocchi is sort of like you know, I can't. You don't. I don't automatically associate gnocchi with mashed potato, but like the moment that you sort of think a little more deeply about it, it's like, yeah, of course, that's why. Absolutely. A little, little potato dumplings of joy. And in terms so. of the techniques, are they identical if you were making a dish of pure mashed potato and using it for the base of a gnocchi dish, for example? Um, it's sort of, it's different. Um, there is sort of, I think that the similarities are kind of with the mashing process itself. So there's sort of like, there's all different, again, different schools of how to match the rices yeah there's the there's the rices which is where the what the chefs um swear by so that is um the ricer is like a giant garlic press um with tiny little holes down the bottom and you just put the potato in and you can press it and one of the good things about those who want to try doing the mashed potatoes without peeling to get that sort of extra flavor is that the ricer will take the skin off for you 
so you don't have to worry so much about that. Okay. I'm a little bit more purist about it because I don't want any skin in my mashed potato. Mm. And uh, as we were sort of talking about a little bit earlier, like the skins have their own magic. Well, so. that's right. I discovered crispy potatoes before I even knew about mashed potatoes. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> mashed potatoes was completely yeah. separate. So, yeah, you can peel the potato peelings, like obviously wash the potato first, and then before if you're going to peel before you cook the potato, potato peelings you can then take off and use that and they make really good crisps and you can either put a chuck them in an air fryer if you've got one of those things or better crisp them up in butter and olive oil mm. you know sort of like equal equal amounts of each and then you know you can do your little mound of mashed potato and you can sprinkle some little potato skin chips crunchy oh, bits on the amazing. top so you know so so fantastic <laughs> it's like you know happiness <laughs> yeah are there what's the most obscure ingredient that you've maybe encountered given that people take mashed potatoes so personally yeah what we well what what are people throwing in there well it's sort of like you can probably throw anything like you know there's the the irish have you know very many variations on this i think there's a it's i think the dish is called it's Colaban, I think it's called a colavan. Somebody will be shrieking at me for getting that wrong, but it's like a very famous Irish dish that has cabbage or kale mm-hmm. put through it. You know, these people put onions through it, people put nutmeg through it. They sort of like, you know, you can put anything. There's there's a recipe that you can put um, sort of olives and olive oil because that's a it's another another mash variation, which is Southern French, which is making mashed potatoes without butter or milk, but with olive oil. Instead, and it's a, it's really delicious. Like you know, it's a it's a different beast. It's sort of like slightly more savoury, and you get that sort of grassiness of the olive oil. And you want to use really good um, extra virgin olive oil with it, but salt and olive oil, also vegan. So uh, you know, kind of like it's not it's uh, you know good for all. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas the uh, you know the normal mashed potato, you, you you get some milk and butter and salt goodness well you're very discerning when it comes to gadgets do you not respect the process unless you have a sore forearm afterwards or yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. suffer for my art <laughs> yeah um oh yeah i'm fork all the way like you know because and they I, I also like to when i mash the potatoes i like to mash them with the milk and the butter and the salt um, a lot of people, like chefs in particular, who are looking for super fluffy, will mash the potatoes first, and then um, and then you mix the whatever the ingredients through. Um, you know, the milk heated um, and butter cold. You need to do the butter cold in your mashed potatoes because it sort of it melts at a more within the potatoes, and so you get more even distribution than if you melt it to start with. So it's sort of make sure, but cube it up first, like dice it into fairly small cubes, and then mix that through, and you get an even butter spread. Incredible. But um, but I yeah, I like to do it as I'm mashing. But there is there's a way to like a lot of people will do it, mash the potatoes first, and then and then wooden spoon only mix the the milk and the butter and the and the salt through afterwards and that will give you a much fluffier result but if you're after i like a sort of a creamier pastier never by the way never use mechanical objects to mash your potatoes food processors or mix masters or any of those things because it will give you glue Okay. Because <laughs> okay. it's sort of like because the mashing process brings out the starch, glu- the, these sort of glutinous starches in the potatoes, and so if you over mash them, they just turn like and it's almost solid. And I saw this thing the other day of Martha Graham and Snoop Dogg making um, mashed potatoes. Martha Stewart. Together. Martha Stewart. 
Yes, and uh, and Snoop Dogg together making mashed potatoes, and she was—I was horrified. She was using <laughs> using KitchenAid. It's sort of like I don't like Snoop Dogg. I forgive. <laughs> I actually had a quick question as well in terms of repurposing. If there is any surplus mm-hmm. uh, mashed potatoes, do you have any favourite ways of using? I it? do like a potato cake. Excellent. I was so, hoping you might go there. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a so approach? it's kind of like, yeah, it's like basically, and with that is when I will add more stuff because I like a pure mash. Um, but with a potato cake, it's kind of nice to sort of chuck other stuff in. So I might, you know, maybe a little fried garlic, maybe a little some spring onions, maybe like, you know, that's where you can put maybe maybe some olives, you know, kind of chopped up quite finely, that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, and then fry in a shitload of olive oil <laughs> and uh, a fair bit of butter. So I, I don't want to re butcher this. Colcanon? Yes, yes, that's the one. Okay. That's what I said. <laughs> uh, gee, it's just eye-watering as always. Wasabi through my mashed potatoes, says one listener. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm kind of all for people sort of like, you know, running wild and running free with their mashed potatoes. You know, it's sort of like, I, as always, the <laughs> yes. purist here, you know, it's kind of like looking down my nose at everybody using anything but a fork, and yes. a, you know, and a waxy potato. But, but uh, ultimately, please. pleasure-seeking libertine. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Mike Larden, thank you. No worries. Ah, that's right. Triple R. Nick McKenzie is a 14-time Walkley Award-winning investigative journalist who has worked over two decades for media outfits, including Four Corners, 60 Minutes, The Age and Sydney Morning Herald newspapers. In 2018, Ben Robert Smith, one of Australia's most decorated war heroes and an up-and-coming media executive, sued Fairfax Media in response to a series of articles written by McKenzie and his mentor Chris Masters, resulting in what's dubbed the defamation trial of the century. It's the subject of Nick's new book, Crossing the Line, the inside story of murder, lies and a fallen hero here on to tell us about it. The four-time Australian Journalist of the Year joins us now. Nick, welcome to Breakfasters. Great to be here. Gee, uh, what an extraordinary story and giant you've taken down and been involved with. Did you ever imagine when this began that you would be here so long later having it monopolise your life? Uh, No, I mean, this is uh, seven or six years later uh, and it's been the, the most insane ride journalistically i've been a journalist for 21 years nothing is compares to the um the sheer craziness of the of the story the stress the uh, incredible sort of things we found and exposed uh nothing compares to that i, I you know, would i go through it again um like it's been pretty hellish uh, it's taken a fair bit out of out of me and, and my life and um i'm still sort of recovering i think from it all and still not knowing because ben robert smith is um such an sort of narcissistic, ego, maniacal psycho. What what does he do next? Is is what I think. You know, obviously, there's a legal appeal that could could come. Um, but the guy's never going to give up and stop fighting to to try to to counter these allegations, which have now found to be true. The war crimes allegations. Mm. So you know, what next? I wonder whether what is the nexus or correlation between the thin skin that you document of this figure and the masculinity, how do, how are they reconciled? Yeah, really good question. And I guess for um, your listeners, I mean, the the book's not about uh, – it's about a war crime scandal, a military scandal. We call it the greatest military scandal in Australian history. But it's not just about that. It's about I mean, the extraordinary characters in the Ben Robert Smith book. It's about the media and journalism in Australia. It's about power in Australia and how power is deployed. You had Kerry Stokes, a billionaire, backing Ben Robert Smith to the hilt. You had Brendan Nelson – a uh, former very powerful coalition minister behind him and a whole range of pretty powerful Australians doing the same. It's about the Anzac myth and who we are as a people. 
but for me, the, the, one of the strongest things in the book is the characters. You know, who is Ben Robert Smith? Uh, and six foot six, uh, over 100 kilos. Um, I mean, I sat next, I was three metres away from him over 101 days of trial um, or thereabouts. You know, the guy's an absolute monster. He's extremely impressive. Uh, on the stand, like, I knew he was lying. All right? And then b- before we got our evidence into court, the court didn't know. The judge would not have known he was lying because he was the very first witness. Gosh, he was so impressive. Uh, people who, who listen to him give corporate talks, he charge 20000 bucks a pot for a corporate talk, would say, oh, this guy's just incredible. Um, people would fall at his feet, literally sometimes uh, hugging him, shaking his hand. You know, he was a national icon. But who is he really behind all that? And the man that we discovered is, is actually a, a tormented, insecure uh, person with an extremely thin skin. And uh, in the, at the end of the trial, as, as the evidence that we knew existed was being, starting to really dramatically come into the courtroom, I began to look at him. He was like a small boy in a big man's body and in a big suit. And, and you know, in, in the end, he's a tragic figure. You know, he had everything. He had uh, Victoria Cross he'd earned through bravery. He had national celebrity. He had millions of bucks. He had a beautiful wife. He had a family. That's all gone. You know, he, he, he cheated on his wife. Uh, he coerced and bullied her. He did the same to a girlfriend who also testified. I mean, the women in the story and there's quite a few female characters in the book, are incredible characters in and of themselves because some of them were subjected to Robert Smith's appalling behaviour, coercive control. And and I tell the story of their rise and how they take back power by seizing truth and reclaiming their own identity, which is a great story to tell. Samantha Cromfitz was one of the people who confronted war crimes as a, as a researcher for the Defence Force, an incredible woman who took on uh, an institution uh, and confronted the Defence Force with these shocking allegations and as a result was tormented, um, attacked on social media, feared for her life at times. Uh, but, but what a story. So Robert Smith, a great character, but there's many others. Uh, and you, as you mentioned, the figure in your book was writing recently about the what, debt collectors and you know the, the implications of the, the havoc that this case has caused will have ripple effects for a very long time. And I suspect that's maybe why you got involved in this game in the first place. Uh, listen, had we lost this case, the Australian investigative journalism, Australian journalism would have suffered. Um, and that's not, that's not an exaggeration. Newsrooms all over the country, even our rivals, um, a very healthy rivalry, uh, in fact, a very, fair to say, unhealthy rivalry, uh, a vicious rivalry in Australia's media. But every journalist, I think, was willing this on because they knew... If we'd lost, that it would have made everyone's job much harder because newspapers wouldn't have published, broadcasters wouldn't have broadcast because of the risk of defamation. It, listen, it's it's a miracle that we won this case. Defamation kills journalism. Mostly we lose because the, the laws are weighted towards the rich and powerful who sue. And journalism, uh, defamation laws are a, d- a disgrace in the country. So to, 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 to win this case and to prove war crimes, and I mean the core war crime, it's, you need to say it, like... Ben Robert Smith kicked a bloke, a father, a farmer called Ali Jan. Uh, he had many kids and a wife. He kicked a guy, a civilian, off a cliff in Afghanistan and participated in, in his murder at the bottom of the cliff. That's, that's what the court found. That's, that's what we initially reported. Um, Am I correct, sorry, in interpreting that maybe playing out a scene he saw in a movie? That, that, that's right. There's a, um, a film, I think it's a shocking film called 300, but it's, I don't know, some people love it. Uh, it was revered in the SASR and, and um, being the Special Air Service Regiment because of this, this sort of obsession with Spartan warrior culture. 
And um, it, one of the first tip-offs we got or first whispers we got when we first heard about this allegation that Robert Smith had kicked someone off a cliff back in – we heard about it in 2017. The actual incident took place in a mission in 2012 in a village called Darwin in southern Afghanistan. People were whispering about him in the regiment or seconded to the regiment – People serving overseas with Australia, they called him the, Sp- the Spartan kicker uh, or Spartacus. Um, and uh, this was uh, his tattoos all revered this Spartan warrior culture. And what does that say? I mean, it says a very small element of the SASR thought they were above the law and sort of embraced this idea that they were rogue um, judge, jury, executioners ro- roving the lands of Afghanistan, dishing out justice, mm. uh, which is wild when you think about it but i must say this the reason we triumphed in court and and he lost his case the reason these war crimes have been exposed the reason there is a small piece of justice for ali jan's family is because brave soldiers in the ssr his colleagues stood up against this i mean these are the moral heroes of the story uh, these these soldiers who did the right thing despite copping threats intimidation and i in the, the book goes into great detail about how ben robert smith covertly went behind the scenes to try to intimidate people into silence. And defenders of Ben Robert Smith would say, well, you know, this is tall poppy syndrome, there's jealousy, bitterness, this man is a giant and is being taken down by people who don't know that they're inferior or can't deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that consistently for six years, but when the test came and the test was caught, and bring your evidence of that, and his barristers every day... We're up there, you know, Arthur Moses SC, um, very well known as a as a uh, as a barrister in, in uh, a senior barrister in Sydney. Um, known now is is the partner of Gladys Berejiklian, and so you know, big big figure. Every day was ripping shreds off our SAS witnesses, calling them jealous and mentally unwell and cowards. But there was no evidence of that. And in the end, the judge Anthony Basanko of the federal court said, uh, "What effectively? Uh, um, this is well, it's a conspiracy theory." These men are giving sworn testimony about witness, eyewitnessing murders. There's no evidence they're jealous. Mm. There's no evidence that they're, that they're mentally unwell. If they're mentally unwell, it's not affecting their memory. If they're mentally unwell because they've served in, in war. And to see that, I mean, to just think of it, it's, it's actually nuts to me that, that um, some, like some parts of our media uh, champion this idea that jealousy was behind men making testimony or allegations of murder. How crazy is that? What, you're so jealous you're going to make up the most famous, powerful and well-connected soldier in the land has murdered a civilian or civilians or prisoners. What, because you're jealous? And then you're going to repeat that on oath in the stand in the court? Yeah, I suppose the the jealousy line would stem from perhaps a view that, well, war is difficult, these ivory tower riders or whatever don't understand what it's like on the ground. And so, yeah, I think you're right in the book, Brendan Nelson, articulates this point i suppose in his defense uh but of course yeah we have people insiders the whistleblowers of who are brought in i mean i imagine they didn't want to testify no we we had to haul people to court because no one wants to testify or i can having sat through court cases and having testified in court cases and having sat through 101 days of odd trial Get, if, do not go to court ever. It's, litigation is a horrifying experience for everyone concerned. No one in the SAS, having you know, having served their country bravely uh, with honour, what to come to court in a public spectacle and have to give evidence against the most famous soldier in the land, or the, for the women in Ben Robert Smith's life to come to court and to reveal details, very personal, intimate details of, of 
um, things they've held so close in, in a public courtroom. Really, really difficult. But I think it goes to the point, no one wanted to be there. And yet when they were there, they, they testified and told the truth. And despite not wanting to, to, to be there, that their truth was believed. That they were all, all our witnesses were found uh, to be to be truthful witnesses, the, the, the key witnesses. And Ben Robert Smith's case was thrown out. Uh, so we found the judge found that he had engaged in four executions or participated in four executions of Afghan prisoners, and, he, and I just want to say, including this man Ali Jan. I mean, this guy, you know, he's just a dad. Um, who's no, no longer there. There's a, there's a bunch of... I've met his kids in Afghanistan. I tell the story in the book of, of meeting them and his wife. They are ordinary, poor... Well, they're not ordinary. They're very poor Afghan people who now are even poorer because one Australian soldier had a bad day. Mm. What... The book really is a snapshot also of power in Australia, in contemporary Australia. What was Mick Kilty doing? It might, might take a... T- Tiny bit of explanation, but Mick Kilty's the former police chief uh, of the federal police. So he's really well known for um, the Bali bombing investigations uh, and extremely well connected in Canberra, the Defence National Security Establishment and in corporate Australia. So he left policing, became a consultant to the, some of the wealthiest families in Australia using his connections. We uncovered that he'd, he'd reached out to Ben Robert Smith uh, and offered to help him. And at the same time, he'd reached back into the federal police and made some very discreet inquiries about whether they were investigating Ben Robert Smith and then passed on what he found to Ben Robert Smith. And there's a, a chapter called Going Dark in the book. You know, Ben Robert Smith's phones went dark, which means that he went off, you know, he stopped using his phones in a way that could be tapped and he began using encrypted applications on burner phones. Now, we discovered, I mean, it's pretty amazing, through a lot of digging and a lot of luck, we actually uncovered the fact that he'd bought through a third-party burner phones, which he nicknamed his handbags. He'd uploaded encrypted devices on those phones. And having found that, we then subpoenaed the telecommunications companies and got all the records. And some um, an amazing junior lawyer at Minter Ellison called Dougal Hurley spent like literally you know, working 24 hours a day tr- looking through these phone records, tracking where the f- these burner phones were hitting phone towers because the burner phones are in a fake name and they're using encrypted apps, you can't see who they're calling. They were hitting phone towers and then he matched the phone towers and how they were hitting those phone towers against Ben Robert Smith's travel movements, which were in the paper, etc. Boom, we could, we could link the phones back to him. So amazing little phones oh. like that, which actually allowed us to prove Ben Robert Smith was using the burner phones, was engaging in you know, unlawful activity or trying to avoid police tapping and therefore was a witness that I mean, the judge looked at this and said, yep, you were using the phones to avoid being tapped by the authorities. Get this, Ben Robert Smith, when he was busted in court for, for, for this behaviour, said, oh, no, I was using burner phones because I thought journalists were, were tapping my phone. I mean, journalists cannot tap a phone. Ridiculous. It was a nuts. But now this is the character of the man who thought he could come in and, and spin these yarns in front of the judge. And he did so with such credibility. I mean, this is, he, he talked about, we, we exposed the fact that he burnt his laptop. I mean, covered it in petrol and lit it on fire, to, we think, to just destroy evidence. He buried USBs in his backyard in a kid's pink lunchbox. The explanations he gave with a straight face to court were so tortured, yet, I mean, if, if not for their content being crazy, the way he delivered them was, was very, very credible. And that's, that's the character of the man. I mean, he is an incredibly good liar. Mm. We're speaking with Nick McKenzie about his new book, Crossing the Line, about the defamation trial that's occupied uh, his life and the news for so long. What's it like for... What does your employer make of this? I mean, aren't you just 
a little bit too much trouble? Yeah, I mean, um, yes. Uh, I, I've apologised to my managers all the time for being impossible to manage. In fact, my very first manager at the ABC from 2002, I had not like, heard from her in many, many years and I got a message after the case and she said, I just want to say congratulations, um, P.S. Gosh, you were a nightmare to, <laughs> to manage and I, I actually apologised to her. But, you know, I think journalists, uh, the best journalists are hard to manage and because you've got to be a, bit of, a pretty insecure, neurotic um, strange cat to be an investigative journalist and uh you know what we do what we do there's no like you don't do it for the money uh you don't do it for there's nothing it's a hard slog of a job you know that most of of the time me me and chris masters who was doing this investigation my mentor an absolute legend in aussie journalism (laughs) alongside me you know, we'd fly, you fly economy class to Perth to, to meet with SAS soldiers. We shared hotel rooms together. You know, I'm lying next to Chris listening to him snore and fart. That's <laughs> like, there's nothing glamorous or, but, but what the privilege is, you get, you get this incredible insight into or the SAS, the most secretive fighting force in the land. And we, we, the war crime secrets we uncovered, I think, you know, will make the defence force a better place. And the fact that the people who helped us uncover this were soldiers reminds Australia, I think, that we can be proud of our armed services because at the core there are good people doing a fine job. And uh, what's next? Are you going to do, what, bachelor recaps or something? Or uh, I think, uh, uh, I mean, there's so many great stories um, uh, in Melbourne, uh, out there, and, and, and in Victoria and in Australia, and we need, we need investigative journalists. Um, and uh, like I'm... Um, overwhelmed with story tips, uh, especially at the moment because the case has been so high profile. So lots of people are, are you know, coming out of the woodwork with, with great stories. Um, uh, so I just keep cracking on. I mean, the other great thing is I, you know, I probably get – at the start I was getting 30 emails a day after the case um, and now it's maybe gone down to about five. And of that 30, you know, 28 are just Aussies saying thank you, veterans saying thank you, and then two of them are death threats. Um, so there's a big part of the community that does not want to have the Anzac myth challenged, that, that does not want Ben Robert Smith challenged and don't, does not want to deal with the facts. That's, that's part of it, the divided community that we have and part of this being a pretty polarising story. And I know we've gone over the news, but the, the VCs, are you wondering why it's not been stripped already or what, what's your opinion on him keeping his Victoria Cross? Well, you know, it's a really difficult question. You can be a, you can be a war hero on Monday, do an act of bravery, and then you can murder Ali Jan by kicking him off a cliff and executing him the next day. I mean, that the same person can do two things. It's a real pity the Australian War Memorial. If if your listeners go there, they'll see a massive bust of Ben Robert Smith's uniform. He's glorified. Well, why, not, why doesn't the War Memorial pay a bit of tribute to the SAS whistleblowers? You know, there's some powerful stories out there. I tell the story in the book of Dusty Miller, an SAS medic who was caring for an Afghan farmer. The guy was taken out of his care and murdered. And then and, and Dusty always wanted to, to do more. To, he, was, he hates himself for not doing more to, to save this man's life. would literally punch himself in the face, you know, when he got home. We became very close, me and Dusty. And in the end, I managed to connect Dusty with the children of the man who was murdered and in Afghanistan. And when they, because of COVID, had to meet on Zoom, I didn't know whether they were going to um, attack him or demand money or, and he, he was, he told them what happened and he apologised and, uh, you know, he was, he was, there was tears in his eyes, there was tears in my eyes and the sons of this murdered man just said to him, thank you, please stop suffering, you've suffered enough, uh, we thank you, stop, stop suffering, we can see your pain 
And it was just this amazing moment of they've lost their dad who's been murdered. This guy's part of the armed, you know, Aussie soldier crew that was that I mean, Dusty didn't do the murder, let's be clear, he, but he didn't step in. Um, and yet they saw his suffering and they wanted to give him compassion and humanity. And I thought it was such a magical moment. Um, and it's, it is described in the book. And, and I was so proud to be a part of it. All right. Well, the book covers this and so much more, as we say. It's discursive and it's a bit of a snapshot of power and status across so many industries in Australia. And uh, thank you very much for the book. It's Crossing the Line. The Inside Story of Murder, Lies and a Fallen Hero. Nick McKenzie, thanks for being on Breakfasters. Thanks for your time. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. This role every morning, of course, is always very enlightening and we're always uh, learning and making discoveries and I think maybe even interrogating things that we thought that we knew. Absolutely. I mean, yesterday... You know, there was the claim about the the chewing gum in the stomach and you carry that around with you and then it turns out that maybe the chewing gum is absorbed by the body. Well, in in, in terms of what you're just saying, this I've held that belief until this week. Wow, exactly. <laughs> so I, I learned yesterday that the chewing gum residue is expelled and doesn't stay in the stomach for seven years, <laughs> as was described by my parents. Yes, and, you know, Michael Harden before was talking about in sommelier circles that room temperature wine is not room temperature, it's cellar temperature. Yes, and people were texting and saying they're finally vindicated. Oh, really? <laughs> in insisting that the wine is refrigerated. Uh, we had Bugman talk about a new study that suggested mosquitoes aren't distracted by lights because they think it's the moon. That's right. That's also another popular myth as yeah, well. Yeah, they, they just want to be above the, or they think the light should be above them. So orienting themselves in space but not mistaking a source of light with the moon. They don't think there are moons everywhere. Exactly. Uh, and I carried that belief up until recently as well. I remember Jace Moore of Local Andor General was um, <laughs> mentioned, he was in the studio with us and he mentioned the eight spiders, people eat eight spiders over the course of their life. And he, oh, I think he was under the, uh, not only is that not true, but I think he was under the misapprehension that we're sleepwalking and like clutching spiders. <laughs> I, I think that that is true. Is it not true? It's. I looked into okay. it. It doesn't appear to have much backing. <laughs> Apparently spiders aren't inclined to just hang out where there's nothing for them. Absolutely. That makes yeah. sense. Uh, and of course we had the behavioural scientist from Harvard who did all these investigations into honesty and authenticity and in the ironic twist she's been accused of data fraud. And the, some of these studies I remember, I think they appeared up appeared in Freakonomics, the, the book, of, of all this behavioural science and then there was a listener that talked about all these things in Freakonomics that there's been doubts cast on the legitimacy of. and So they are working theories until they're yeah, debunked and so it's good to remain open-minded about these sort of working That's theories. That's right. But the, 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 it's kind of exhausting having the wall... What is it? If the wall's pulled over your eyes, then having the wall taken away constantly. I'm in a, I'm a, a terrible state of... Uh, realising the truth about something. I mean, the, the, the myths that we carry until they're, we are disabused of them, mobile phones at petrol stations. Now, 
that is there, that doesn't happen. There no, they're not. It's not dangerous, and it's been admitted that not dangerous. But the warnings are still there. I see. Mm. And so is it just like extra precaution, like an abundance of caution? I guess that- so. Or maybe no one wants to be stuck behind someone. So, so it's a secondary f- function in that Maybe. Way. And maybe the secondary function has now become the primary function, but we all pretend that it's the old primary function. That's why we're doing it. Uh, apparently, SOS d- didn't stand for anything. It, it was because it was in Morse code. It was simple. It was the three dashes and three dots and three dashes or however it goes. And so subsequently, Save Our Souls was interpolated That's into that. That's right, yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, Leonardo... Oh, Dr. Jen is another one with the 10,000 steps where, you know, maybe last year she was saying that 10,000 steps was a marketing number and it's actually the optimum number of steps or the number of steps at which point you've, you know, reached the the distance at which it's beneficial to travel is lower than 10,000. Uh, but I've carried around 10,000 steps is good for you. Uh, we've had the um, Panadol. Panadol, did you ever get the myth in school about giving a seagull a Panadol? I, I heard something about it, but I, I, I knew that that was a you terrible was, thing to do. Yeah, oh, of course it's a terrible thing Absolutely. to do. Absolutely. And that's why no one did it and no one ever saw anyone do it. I'm confident. I hope, sincerely hope so. And yet the belief was that they like instantly explode, like a cartoon. I just, I'm traumatising. I know, I know. Thinking I'm about sorry to bring it up. Childhood memories. Um, Leon, I always thought that Leonardo da Vinci wrote backwards to as a code. This is something that I would also hold as a mm. belief somewhere. And I look into it and there's the view that it's, it wasn't that at all. It was because it was left-handed and uh, it avoided smudges. I see. So there was a real practical yeah. implication. There's got to be some beliefs that are really important to hold on to that hold true. Like an apple a day, for example. That is oh, like one exactly. of those principles. Well, there's... Uh, there's metaphorical truth, I think it's called. Like it, it might not be literally true, but it's metaphorically true in that to pursue that school of thought will lead to a better life. I see. Foundational mm. principles. Uh, apparently like a red rag, you know, like bullfighting, like bulls, they don't, they're colourblind, they don't see red, it doesn't matter. And so it just has become, I suppose, symbolic in other ways? That's, yes. And it's it's the motions of the of the guy in the ring doing whatever they're doing is that makes the ball agitated and it's got nothing to do with the color red and it's it's just these these i'm getting over debunked i i I can't i can't bear it anymore um in the apparently and tell me if you believe this in the bible uh the three wise men there there's no reference to there being three I see. So this is just a... Is there not in the Bible itself a reference? That's my understanding, is there's not a reference, and we've inferred it from the three gifts. So this is scholarship. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And I know history. people revisit history all the time, and that's something. But I remember reading a book, and the fact that stayed with me was that the dead outnumber the living 20 to 1. And... I thought yesterday is that that's I've been holding on to that stat for decades, and it's a and I, it's now reduced in in twenty twelve it was fifteen to one. So my mind, it's boggling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so oh, that's there are 
listeners who, you know, the Apple a day invented by marketing people to sell apples. They're associated with apple cider and drunkenness in USA and needed rebranding. Apparently it's aspirin with seagulls and it does work. Ooh. Uh, thankfully no one's trying it at all. Um, snake charmers rely on the constant movement of their instrument, not the music, says one listener. It's just a, a barrage of debunking. Yeah. Oh, it's brutal. But that's... that's uh, you have to interrogate what you think about what you know. Indeed. So bottom line, remain curious. Yeah. But um, ultimately, we'll get to an age where we're set in our ways and we're done learning. <laughs> Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of The Best Bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.